0: Please join me on page 993 of the Pew Bible, 1st Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, we're grateful to be here this morning. We're grateful for the people that you've surrounded us with and for just blessing us with another day. Not just a day to spend as we will, Lord, but as you have for us. We're grateful for healing that has taken place, as Cody said, with David Weber. grateful to have him back at work and to see him here this morning. Lord, we're grateful for the challenges that you set before us knowing that you will walk through those with us, not that we're on our own. I pray that you prepare our hearts this morning for the words that you have given to Cody. And uh, in addition to our hearts, Lord, open our ears to hear those words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: The title of... The sermon this morning is A Charge to Keep. You'll see the title as given to us, basically, in verse 13 of your Bible, if you have it open there to 1 Timothy chapter 6. But this title, A Charge to Keep, doesn't simply uh, isn't simply found within Scripture here. It's the basis for the title, certainly, but many others have, have taken that charge that title a charge to keep and they've they've carried it on the great Charles Wesley is the writer of many 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 of the hymns that we sing most of them you can find within your hymnal And if you were to look up the back of your hymnal, you might find quite a bit. But even if you found just a few, there are a smattering of the amount of hymns he has written. And some assume he may have written as many as 6,000 hymns in his lifetime. Well, he took this title, A Charge to Keep, and he wrote a hymn with that title. And let me read to you one of the verses. A charge to keep I have... God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky, to serve to present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Matthew Henry probably was the basis of even that tune. In his commentary on the whole Bible in the section between Leviticus Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he says this, quote, We have every one of us a charge to keep, an eternal God to glorify, an immortal soul to provide for, needful duty to be done, our generation to serve, and it must be our daily care to keep this charge. For it is the charge of the Lord our Master who will shortly call us account to account about it, and it is our utmost peril if we neglect it. Keep it, that ye die not. It is death, eternal death, to betray the trust that we are charged with. By the consideration of this, we must be kept in awe. The text this morning is going to be an active text. It calls us to action. It challenges us not to sit idly by on the sidelines, if you will, of this Christian life, but to take part In fact, the text, I believe, would would point to us the truth that in God's kingdom and under his reign, God's reign, those God calls takes action, take action that witnesses to the world their allegiance to him. Let me repeat that in God's kingdom and under his reign, those he calls take action to witness to the world our allegiance to him. Look with me at the text, if you will, and you'll Notice, beginning eleven and twelve, we have action verbs terms. There's four of them. You'll see them there. Point number one this morning is in eleven and twelve, and I've entitled it "Point Number One: A Battle to Fight." A battle to fight. Remember from our study earlier on in First Timothy, it's it's begun from the very opening le- uh, chapter, if you will, this call to to confront. And challenge false teachers. He's done this in chapter 6 again. In verses 3 through 10. And he's going to pick up that charge or challenge even in the coming verses. Next week we'll see in 17 and, and on. And so you see in verse 11 he says but. So different then from these false teachers is to be the man of God. And that term oh man of God is not a light term. It's Purposely placed there. It's a term that it was used throughout the Old Testament especially to designate a specific call. It was the term of the prophets. Moses was termed as a man of God. Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, King David were, was termed as a man of God. And so in many ways, Paul telling Timothy, listen, you're different. You're not like... Those other guys who are trotting out this false doctrine. You're not living your life based upon your own whims and wishes. You're a man of God. For the Christian, for you this morning who believe in Christ. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You're a man of God. You're a woman of God. And, And the action that we're called to here in just a few verses is based upon... The fact that those who are called will pursue the things that honor God. Well, look at these four words of action. Do you see them? Into verse 11, you see flee, pursue, fight, take hold. Let's look at them. Flee, beginning in verse 11 there. Flee these things. What are these things that he's telling Timothy to flee. Well, he's telling him to flee the false teaching. And ultimately, I think he's telling him to leave, flee the false living as has been described above. This this living that produces envy, verse 4, and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. This living that is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul tells Timothy in the next letter he writes to him in 2 Timothy... Flee youthful passions. Flee sin, if you will. This isn't to be something that you're to be known for, Timothy. But not only flee, pursue. Halfway through verse 11, pursue something. Pursue what? Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. The KJV renders this, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue. They're tied together. You, you don't just run. You run towards something. Steadfastness, the New American Standard says persevere. Or patience, gentleness, meaning meekness. Second Timothy, again, verse 22 of chapter two, continuing, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Well, one of the things we looked at last week is that sin comes in bunches and praise God that so does good fruit. It comes in bunches as well. For instance, the fruit of the spirit, Galatians five, love and joy and peace and patience. What Pursuit of one overflows into pursuit of others. Pursuit of one produces fruit in other things. And so we see that though these false teachers are pursuing things and they're wrong in their pursuit, it's not wrong to pursue. The question is, what are we pursuing? And it's even not wrong, as we'll see next week, it's not wrong to pursue a bank account that has a large figure in it. As long as that pursuit is harnessed under the kingdom of God for his glory. Recognizing that that is not the wealth. Rather it is the kingdom of God and is the riches of Christ that is our wealth. We'll see that next week. We can't get our pursuits ahead of our love relationship with Christ. But it's interesting here. Look at these terms. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Why in the world would anyone would want to pursue those type of things? Right? How fun is that? Answer, not very fun. Right? How much pleasure do you get in pursuing these things? Well, from the world's eyes, this is ridiculous. But for those who, have, those who have beheld the mystery of godliness, we saw that term over in chapter 3, verse 16. You might just glance over there. It's probably just to the left. This mystery of godliness... In verse 16 of chapter 3 that we confess, those who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, those who have come under the grace of God, that grace that has overcome His wrath for our sin by the shed, shedding of the blood of His Son, all of a sudden there's a shift. And that mystery of godliness is now an adornment of the beauty of the gospel. And these virtues become lovely. In fact, they become desirable. In fact, they become pleasurable. More than just for a season. Because they reflect the beauty of the gospel. Flee, pursue, beginning of verse 12, fight. He told Timothy in chapter 1 verse 18... This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And this isn't some meaningless fight. This isn't some wasted fight. This is a good fight. We'll speak more about this in a minute, but it's a fight for faith. It's not a fight. It's, excuse me, it's not a fight for faith. It's a fight of faith can't fight your way into faith meaning you can't fight your way into salvation now you can fight to live in the light of the faith that has been granted to you it's a gift not of works lest any man should boast we'll speak more about this fight here in a moment look at the last verb take hold or to take hold of what Of the eternal life to which you have been called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Quite a bit there. But first of all, we must understand that Christian, I'm speaking of Christian, not non-believer, but Christian, do you want heaven? Well, of course I want heaven. Then take hold of heaven. Go after eternal life. Pursue it. Take action. Why? Because you were called Paul here, in a few moments, is going to anchor the, the work of Timothy's soul in the return of Christ. We're going to see that in just a moment. But you see, even now, he begins to give us a glimpse of this. That, that we, as Christians, Timothy as a Christian, has been called to this fight. Has been called to this task. It isn't a choice we woke up and said, you know, I think I'm going to do this and not that. No, it's a, it's a calling. And with that calling comes an equipping. We've been called to eternal life. We could preach a whole sermon on that one. What it means is you've been given eternal life. Come on. Amen? Amen. Why? What, what, what happened with this calling? Well, you notice it, it overflowed into a confession. Confession. Timothy has made a confession. Well, what does that confession mean? Is this a is this something he said? He preached a good sermon? I don't think so. I think the confession he's actually speaking about is how he has lived his life. It's his action. It, it, it's it's certainly both. Certainly he has to say things that are that are in accordance with eternal life. But even more importantly. And it's always more important is his actions, because the the false teachers had the right words, but their actions were all off. And we will even see here in a moment Christ, who made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Well, if we look at the book of Matthew, we're going to recognize he didn't say much to Pontius Pilate. But he lived and he lived a faithful life. A confession, the, the, the confession of, of Timothy, the, our confession, our witness, if you will, of one's life is to be seen all the way to death. And that's what Christ did. His, his faithfulness was all the way to death. But it's a confession that was public. Public. This flies right in the face of our Christianity today that has stated that, you know, it's 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 a personal relationship. It's really between me and God. No one else can have influence. No one else can tell me what I ought to think or how I should live or what I should obey or not obey. Mark Dever is the one who stated this quote. I've heard it from him. Maybe he picked it up from someone else. I think it's helpful that Christianity is personal, but it's never private. It's always to be, to be lived in witness, in presence of others. And certainly there's application here for evangelism. That it is our witness, that which is faithful to the eternal life that we have been called, wherever we go. And we're tempted, we're, we're often tempted... That our witness might be faithful before other Christians. But, oh, hey, I happen to find myself in this group of people that are not Christians. And I can get away with some things. or probably don't need to actually say, hey, by the way, I'm a Christian. And if there's anyone in this room that has that temptation, the, the most temptation in that area, it's me. You know what kills conversation with, un- with unbelievers faster than anything else? What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Great. Uh, got a friend over here. I haven't seen him in a while. I'm going to go talk to him. And so I'm tempted all the time. Even this week, we had someone come to our home to buy something that we were selling off Craigslist. And the only way to really get to our house is to go by the church. So I directed him by the church. And as he's on the phone, he said, oh, are you the preacher man? And I went, yeah. To my shame, I did not give him the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to live our life in the presence of many witnesses. So all of this fighting that he is calling us to here is part of the calling. Do you see that? Do you, do you see what he's doing here? The, the fighting, the pursuing, the fleeing, the taking hold is all part of the calling. That in God's kingdom and under his reign, those he calls take action to be witnesses, in order to be witnesses to the world, that our allegiance is to Him, and and you hear this this warring tone, this masculine tone. Oh, man of God, take action. And it's it's a tone we're unfamiliar with. Historically, the tone it would have fit well with Timothy. You know, he's he's under Roman rule, and these people were always fighting. Fighting was part of their day. Fighting is not part of our day. Men, Jonathan Edwards says, will believe that things will be as they choose to have them without reason and sometimes without the appearance of reason. We wake up in the morning as Christians and we, I think, oftentimes think that we don't have to do much. The fight is going to go away if we just sort of Hunker down. Or we we think, well, I'll start fighting when he starts attacking. Edwards was a famous theologian. Slightly less than him was the great theologian Calvin. Not John, but Calvin and Hobbes. Hobbes, do you have an idea for your project yet? Calvin, no, I'm waiting for inspiration. You can't just turn on creativity like a faucet. You have to be in the right mood. Hobbes, what mood is that? Calvin, last minute panic. Well, that's exactly how I think we often approach this warfare mentality of the Christian life. When do I start fighting? When it's almost all the way over. I'll begin warring then, but I just hope that maybe I... If I hide enough, I don't have to get into this. We hate fighting in our culture. We are an effeminate culture. And we want a clean and we want a scheduled fight. Right? No biting, no scratching, no clawing. You know, nice and clean. And no, you can't attack my weaknesses. You have to attack my strengths. Don't cheat. We hate exertion in our culture. We want to lose five pounds in five days, eating five steps without walking five steps, right? That's what we do. And so it pulls over to the Christian life and we go, really? Fight? Blood? No, thank you. And yet what are we called to Hebrews 12:4 in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood if Christ is any example he went all the way to the point of death even death upon a cross he went all the way till they had nothing to do other than to take his life because of his resistance against sin 1 Corinthians 16:13 Ladies, even this masculine tone is for you as well. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 2 Timothy 2 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This is the Christian life to fight, to pursue, to flee, to take hold. So are you fleeing sin this morning? Or are you entertaining it? Are you fighting the good fight of faith? You know, if you, if you flee without fighting, it's a fatal work. You've got to fight and you've got to take the fight to the enemy. Where does that fight take place? Well, it really takes place in my heart and within my mind, because I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So how's your mind these days? How does one flee? How do you pursue? How do you fight? What does that practically look like? Well, just a couple of things. One is, every person's battle is individual, and yet every person's battle is similar. So we all have different personalities, if We and yet... And and so we may have different tendencies, but all of us are living under the curse of sin. So in many ways, our our battle is similar. And and so then the application really can be, how would you pursue a hobby that you enjoy? How would you pursue a goal you want to accomplish, whether it's a business goal or a health goal? How would you pursue that? Well, you'd study it. You'd shift your habits around it. You'd get help with it. You'd find someone to... Encourage you in it. It's pretty similar. The action items, if you will, before we move to point number two, that we have seen all the way through 1 Timothy. These character traits that we have been called to emulate have all been meant as a call to ordain, to ordain, to, to adorn, excuse me, the beauty of the gospel and to not sully it, to not tarnish it. Philippians 2.15, that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so we are to flee and we are to fight in order that we might shine as lights in a crooked and twisted generation. We have to flee the worldview that is a twisted and crooked generation. So which worldview are you feeding upon this morning? Well, for me personally and my family, we homeschool. Well, whether or not you homeschool or not, for homeschoolers, one of the things that we can tend to pride ourselves on is thinking, hey, 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 my worldview is Christian. I teach my children. I I educate them. I don't have this horrible sex education within their curriculum. And I can pray in my school. And I have prayer. You know, all these different things, right? And I don't teach evolution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, good. But what do you feed? You, what, what worldview are you feeding upon? Because the one that gets into every single home, Christian, public, or private, is Hollywood. It's Hollywood. Listen, you can't feed on Hollywood and pursue Christ in faithfulness. You can't. You cannot do it. Now, am I suggesting you can't watch a movie? No, that's not what I said. But if that's your diet, if it's three, four, five, six movies a week, if it's just consistent, let me just tell you, you've got to be warned. It's subtle. And they take and they begin... To rationalize and justify, Hollywood loves the Christian home. Because they can get in through the back door, through the chimney, through the front door, in ways that they can't get in any other way. And we've got to be warned about this. The worldview that is there is a false worldview. Oh, then, so here's the opposite, isn't it? Well, no, 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 no. We don't want any of that. We'll pursue righteousness. We'll just go at it. Right? Well, listen, all of us have guilt. All of us have guilt over our sin. All of us have guilt over things that have we, we, we've done in our life. And so, instead of fighting the fight of faith, we, we, we begin to say, well, I just won't do any of that stuff in order to fight for faith. That's called moralism. Here's a definition of moralism, and it's original me, so take it with a large grain of salt. Moralism, fighting absent a verbal confession and repentance in order to relieve a guilty conscience. If I just do enough good things or don't do enough bad things, I can outrun my guilt. No, no, you can't. You need Christ. You need him to be the one who has outrun and carried all your guilt. And it is within Christ that you can pursue godliness and righteousness and faith and love and a right worldview. Because he's enabled you to do so. Can I ask you this morning, have you confessed your sin? And confessed that Jesus Christ alone can save you from your sin and the wrath of God the Father? Or are you still trying to outrun your guilt? By your own ways. Do you recognize that your sin. Has got to be paid for. That you can't fight your sin hard enough to make it go away. That you need Jesus Christ. And that the offer stands waiting for you. If you will but repent and put your trust in him alone. He will change you. He pours out grace upon grace. And all of a sudden you go from a life that. Loves the things of the world. And pursues things wrongly to a life that is radically transformed. Point one, a battle to fight. Point two, a charge to keep. We'll find this in verse 13 through the beginning of verse 15. A charge to keep. Paul takes Timothy, if you will. And he takes him into the heavenly courtroom. With God as the judge. And he says, Timothy... I charge you in the presence of God. I charge you and before the one who gives life to all things. And, and I charge you before his perfect son who has given you life. And has set the example for you. I charge you before the heavens that you might keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach. It's a heavenly charge. It's, it's one equipped by the calling of God. It's one that has come through the fact that God has given life to all things. And specifically, he's given spiritual people, believers in Jesus Christ, he's given us life through the offense of the cross, Calvin says. And not only has he given us life, therefore our life is his, therefore we're to follow him. He has given us an example. Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. We could go to John or Matthew this morning and recognize what Christ did. That at the height of his fight against this world and this flesh and the devil, he had a good confession. That good confession, that good witness was confirmed even to the point of death. And ultimately, our confession... If it's in Christ, we'll be confirmed in death as well. Well done, we hope to hear, thou good and faithful servant. So Christ's earthly example at the height of the battle for us was the battle that we must fight as well. The work and ministry of Jesus Christ that we see in John and we see in Matthew and we see throughout all of the Bible is not some abstract principle. I didn't wake up this morning and say, what should I tell these people? Oh, by the way, let's talk about some guy named Jesus that we're nearly not quite sure actually lived and what he actually did. No, this is true. This is a, this is something, this is a work, this is a ministry that is something that we carry moment by moment as a present reality. It strengthens and equips us in our work and ministry and life and battle. And he calls him to keep this commandment. And I take that as the instructions of this letter. And it's it's a witness before God. So he didn't say, hey, Paul, I have a... Hey, Timothy. Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy, I've got a good idea. I really think as the protege of mine, you really need to make sure you get this all right so that I look good. No, Paul doesn't care about what he looks like. He's interested in whether God the judge approves of Timothy, his pastorate, and his church. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Keep it untarnished. Silverware, if, if real silver, if left in the drawer, if not attended to, tarnishes. It loses its polish. We must be those who are keeping the commandments of Christ unstained and free from reproach by our witness. And that commandment and this fight is in the face of opposition. It's in the face of our suffering. It's not something easy. It's those that come and are in their wickedness and their hatred of God and His authority and their hatred of us as His redeemed people. They assault us and it also comes from within, from our own suffering and our own doubts. And so we must be those who fix our mind, our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2 This is the work, Christian. This is the fight to fix our eyes on Jesus. And what he's done for us. Because when we're doing that, it's very difficult to get caught up in the entanglements of the world. Some of you may know the story from Matthew 14 of Peter. Well, Peter was under great duress. He was under... Circumstantial persecution, if you will. He, he, he was under opposition, and this opposition was in the form of a storm. He and his fellow disciples were on the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee can very quickly become this raging sea. And as he's on this sea and they're desperately trying to get to safety upon shore, they're unable to do so. And Christ is not with them. He's up on the mountain. He is keeping his eyes, if you will, upon the Father. He is praying and he has been spending much of the night there. And after his praying, he comes and he can see across the sea what his disciples are going through and he walks on the sea. And as he walks up to this boat, the disciples recognize that's not normal. People don't walk on the ocean, on the Sea of Galilee. They don't walk on water. And that guy is walking on water. And Peter, in a a moment of brilliance, says, if you're God, if you are Jesus, then command me to walk on this water to come to you. And Christ says, come. And what does Peter do? Again, in his rare moment of brilliance, takes a step out of the boat upon water. And for just those few seconds, you've got to wonder what's going through Peter's mind. And as he begins to walk with his eyes fixed on his Savior, he glances away. At the sea, at the turmoil, at the wind, at the waves, at all of that's going on around him, and he loses sight that the one who's standing before him is in control of all of that, and he begins to sink. And in an act of divine grace, Christ reaches out his hand and he lifts him up. So, in our fight, let us not grow weary. We serve A Savior who loves us and He gave Himself for us. Who has all power to lift us out of this suffering. Now, is the suffering still happening? Of course it's still happening. It was raging all around Peter. But he was standing upon the rock of Christ at that moment. And we can too, even in the midst of the challenges that are around us. Notice what he says here, back in 1 Timothy 6. That this Christ will yet again appear at the proper time and it will be a display. Are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you ready for the display of that glory? And if you are, then have patience. It's coming. And it's well worth waiting for. The Christian life consistently the christian living consistently aware of the imminent return of christ has an anchor for their soul's pursuit of christ that is what anchors our soul as we as we wait for this return of our savior and king christ is is the one who who took the action that we are called to take here he he fled if you will sin he pursued things he fought he he took hold christ defeated sin and death he's the one who crushed the serpent's head he's the one who laid hold for us eternal life he did it and therefore in the example of christ we are enabled to imitate him point number one a battle to fight point number two a charge to keep and then finally as we conclude point number three a king to honor a king to honor 15 and 16. Just look with me there and and, and note the words that, that reflect kingdom language. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, and this is speaking of God. This is describing God the Father. He's sovereign, kingly language. King, kingdom language. Lord, immortal, honor, eternal dominion. If we have just stated that the Christian living consistently aware of the imminent return of Christ has an anchor for their soul's pursuit of Christ, then we can also say that the authority and magnificence of God then energizes and equips and encourages the soul's pursuit of Christ in the face of opposition from the wickedness around us. This description of God is magnificent. And it's seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's displayed for us in Christ. And let me just give you one of the ways that that happens. In 1st Daniel chapter 15, Saul is called to slaughter a certain people group. They were enemies of God and God says, Saul put him to death. Every single one down to the animals. Don't leave anything remaining. And Saul slaughters way more than 50%. To the point that I think if you would have walked on that battlefield today by the description of Matthew, uh, 1 Samuel 15, you're not sloshing in mud from rain, you're saucing in, in blood-soaked mud. And you would think... God will look upon it and say, 90% A plus, you're good to go. But he says, no, not enough blood. My enemies must be exterminated. Well, how do we see this in Christ? Well, we think of our Jesus, meek and mild and easygoing, and, and yet we get the picture of Revelation Chapter 19 of a king who's coming upon a horse and he's not some meek and mild thing. He isn't riding a donkey as we see in Mark and in the other gospels. Uh, A donkey being the sign of this peace. He's riding the stallion in all his eternal glory and, and kingship. And on his robe and on his thigh, Revelation 19 verse 16, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we can see this picture that he has a robe dipped in blood. And the king who is immortal and the king who has all power doesn't just come by himself. He who needs no army is arrayed with armies behind him as he comes to bring justice and rescue his people. The king, the only sovereign, the blessed one, who alone has immortality as we see in Christ... Jeremiah 10.10, 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting God. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. He is alone like this. There is no one like God. Only God possesses these traits. Only God is the one who is immortal. And yet he can bestow these traits upon others. We've been given for those in Christ eternal life from Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. KJV puts it this way. He dwells in the light which no man can approach to. We saw that even this morning in Isaiah 6. This holiness of God that even to look upon the light of God in all his glory would incinerate us. And yet through Christ, we can be in his presence one day for eternity. Psalm 104, verse 2. God covering himself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. First John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Paul is simply the messenger to Timothy. Timothy, God is concerned with your individual soul. He is concerned with the faithfulness of his local church. The gospel of grace is to be seen in the individual believer in order that the world might see who has all power and deserves all honor. So, Timothy, be faithful. Timothy, fight. Timothy, go at it. Because God is with you. God is with us. Isaiah tells us that this Christ who was to come and even now has come is God with us. Emmanuel. He tells us in Psalm 23, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death. I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. God with us. This eternal, this magnificent God with And all His glory is with us. He is the Father who loves us and is with us and is even for you. So we have a charge even this week. We have a charge this week. That in God's kingdom and under His reign, those of us He has called would take action to witness to the world our allegiance to Him. And I trust that as we pursue this, That pursuit is equipped by His grace and there is much, much grace available that we might be faithful for His glory. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank You that it is not without hope that we are called to this Christian life. That in the labor and in the sweat and in the blood and in the tears of This side of eternity, we are those who have been given grace upon grace. We have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. That Christ came and fought for us. He has obtained for us an inheritance. And the inheritance of eternal life. Father, we thank you that this grace equips us for the battle. And we recognize that so often within the quietness of our home, within the alone time as we drive. That on a walk, as we just reflect within our own mind, that we don't fight as we often are called to do. And yet your grace is there. It's even given to us this morning from your word, calling us back to this engagement. And it's not a fruitless engagement. It's one that is a a, a wonderful blessing. The God who is the most blessed. And the one that has been saved in Christ as he pursues that God, the blessing of God is his blessing as well. That we are, we are blessed and, and we find joy and we find great hope even in this pursuit. That the pleasures of this world fade and we see, as we fix our eyes upon Christ, the joy that he had for us. And enduring, we that joy is ours as well. Father, we ask that you would send your son, Christ, to return and do it soon. And may that imminent return that we hope for even now, may it anchor our souls in our pursuit of you and for your glory. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Christ. Amen.